Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We, we are, are magical, magical fairy godmothers, godmothers in, in training. I'd like to start out by welcoming Saga. And our stories today are about magical weapons. The white chalk horse gleamed in the moonlight on the late fall evening. The wind blew from the south, making its way through the rolling hills and ruffling the leaves of the hedgerows. The sound of a lone horse cart clopping hoofs and wooden wheel rims creaking harness and the puffing of a horse's breath could be heard from the ridgetop road down in the homes in the small village. Wives put their shawls over their ears Husbands started fiddling with their pipes and tossing more logs on the fire. Children pulled the covers over their heads, tucked three and four to a bed. The huge man, sitting lazily on the seat of the cart, pulled it to a stop once the road was level and jumped down, giving the horse a rest from pulling the combined weight of firewood, his blacksmithing gear, and himself. He put his hands behind him, stretching out the muscles of his back and his broad chest. Talking gently to his horse, a companion for many years, he checked its hooves for stones and offered a handful of oats. Almost there, boy, my fine fellow, almost there. The horse grunted, stomping one hoof to the ground, indicating that he preferred to move on and get out of the wind. The man laughed and pulled the reins to the front leading the horse and stretching out his long muscular legs for an ambling mile or so. Several miles later, having climbed back on the cart, the wagon pulled to a stop by an ancient long barrow. The mystery of this place was perceptible. Trees having lost their leaves provided something of a windbreak around the ancient stones. Wayland unhitched the horse, throwing a warm blanket over him for the time being. It would soon be hot enough. He jumped up into the wagon, hoisted up the anvil, and tossed it to the ground in the direction of the long stone structure. The moon was coming on full and gleaming above the far-off hills in the distance across fields lying fallow. Wayland stood in the moonlight, looking around and sensing for the closest living creatures. None very close, he thought, satisfied. He had private things to do, and this was the best place that he could do them. He didn't like to be spied on. This barrow was one that was avoided by humans because it led into an opening into the realm of the old ones. On top of that, the white horse gleaming in the distance was part of the province of the horse goddess, Epona. No one would dare to be out in the night here. After setting up the anvil in a place where the wind could reach it, the furnace was pulled to the cart's edge and heaved to the ground. 
He set that up in the windbreak area adjacent. Humming to himself, he conjured the fire with wood from nine different kinds of trees. He pulled out a great bellows and set to work. Some hours later, with molten metal and the fierce firelight casting shadows on the sculpted planes of his face, he was sweating and smiling with satisfaction. Whatever came out of this night's work, it would be something very fine, he thought. He moved around to do his blacksmithing work, finding strength from the earth and different qualities available at different times of the year. This place was accessible to old magic, to Epona's strength and to the old ones. Unlike other blacksmiths, he didn't plan anything ahead of time. He just felt the need to be in a particular place at a particular time. And some weapon or tool came out of that. Somehow, the one it was made for always found him. He wasn't particularly interested in making that easy since he'd once been captured and forced to create. Now, trust didn't come easily and he preferred to keep moving. Getting into the rhythm of making had its own reward. He pulled deeply from the earth, working the old magic into the iron. He pulled down moonlight and incorporated the wind. The iron rods were piling up and he kept working. Whatever it was going to be, it was gonna be big. A sword, most likely. But what kind of sword and for whom? Unlike other times, he had no clear sense of the requirements for this blade. Shrugging, he decided pattern welding would be ideal and set to work. He was at the moment where the long blade was beginning to take form when he felt a prickling between his shoulder blades. The sound of his elven blacksmith's hammer beating the sword into shape nearly muffled the arrival sounds of the lean woman on a dapple gray horse. Securing her magnificent steed near the blacksmith's apparently older cob, she observed wryly that the horses were likely to get along more easily than she and the surly Wayland. Continuing his rhythmic beat on the anvil, he called out, Who's there? Not a fae, not Epona, not human. Skyborn? He edged around the anvil, massive hammer still striking in rhythm. He saw her first out of the corner of his eye. She stood like a blade herself, absolutely still and lethal, with cold smoke gray eyes looking out of a stylized winged helmet. Elven manufacture, he thought automatically, but not an elf. Certain of herself, but not of her welcome, she said, blacksmith, I have a need of you, or rather of your help, she amended when she saw his curling lip. She was heavily armed with a sword belt, two swords, one long, one short, and knives strapped in her iron-shod boots, not a fay. Her tabard over gleaning male coat showed a vast tree with swans circling below on a pond, Valkyrie. Wayland felt hot anger and cold loss looking at her and remembering nine years with a Valkyrie who simply left one day never to return. She looked impatient as she saw the shifting story moving across his face and in his eyes and the abrupt silence when he stopped swinging the hammer. You dare, he said coldly, 
or are you here for me? Another realization flashing across his face. Of course I'm here for you, but not to take you in any sense of the word, blacksmith. She said evenly, I'm not here about what happened before. I'm here about what happens now and what unfolds in the future. Do you dare come here as a Valkyrie after all she put me through? Well, I'm a Valkyrie, but in truth, I came here for a sword. For you, he asked scathingly. She hesitated and then let her guard down infinitesimally. I would love one of your swords. Who wouldn't? But as you see, I'm armed with sky metal. No, I want a sword for a hero yet to be. At your own request or here at the will of the Allfather, he asked, deciding the best path forward was to get down to business and get her gone. As the will of the Allfather blacksmith, as you have never understood or you would have cherished your Valkyrie and then let her go. She had several tense moments of conversation with the blacksmith, understandable under the circumstances, before he nodded curtly in agreement. He resumed the pounding and beating of the sword, already pattern-welded, while she drew out her own hammer and instruments. He shaped the sword, working quickly and with consummate skill. She poured a flask of water into the cooling barrel, which changed the texture and color of the water, shifting it to luminous pale fire blue. When the sword gleamed silver, proud and deadly, he put it back into the flame and heated it up again. When it was malleable but still holding its form, he pulled it out of the flames and onto the anvil. She took up her own hammer, shaped like a mini Mjolnir, and moved into place over the sword and began a complicated incantation in an ancient tongue while stamping cuts onto the length of the blade. Eerie currents swirled from the ground below, wrapping her in a dark glow. Occasionally peering over her shoulder and letting her know when the sword needed to go in the fire again, Wayland watched as letters appeared in what looked to be an ancient language. He knew not to interrupt her as she worked, but tried to puzzle out what she was writing. Hard to tell as it kept changing. It seemed what she was doing was repeated three times in three different languages. When she finally completed what looked like a line of runes, she pulled another instrument out of the fire. This stamping tool allowed for less fine script and with this she hammered what were clearly large runes onto the blade that were bigger than the condensed and very fine script. These runes glowed with an eldritch light and Wayland recognized the victory rune of the god Tyr. She put the blade back into the fire and pulled out her boot knife, slashing her forearm and dropping her blood onto the blade. Magic poured from her voice, which grew loud and harsh, and magic flowed from her hands into the blade until the script glowed and the larger runes blossomed with fire. Eventually satisfied, she passed the blade back to him and said, sign it with your mark. He complied, adding his own charm in an elven tongue and passed it back to her. After flipping it from side to side to see it in its entirety, she intoned another chanted charm and plunged it into the luminous water. The rune script and solo runes all glowed, as did Wayland's mark, and then went out, leaving the blade silver and quiet. 
She pulled a large crystal bead carved with spirals and strung on a leather thong from her belt purse. Wrapping the leather cord around the hilt of the sword, she breathed more charms over the crystal. Awaken, life stone, were the only words that Waylon understood. She looked up into Waylon's eyes and said, it's done. What happens now, asked Waylon. We share some mead and I give you a bag of gold and a special gift. The gift is sky metal, which I saw fall to earth long ago. I thank you for your skill, Wayland. Thank you for allowing me to watch your skill, Valkyrie. And the sky metal is appreciated as much as the gift of knowing the Allfather's will. What's your name? Sigdrifa, she answered levelly. Do you take this to your would-be hero now? Oh no. Now I throw it into the river to be found a thousand years from now. Thank you, Betsy. That was really extraordinary and totally caught me by surprise too. The end really caught me by surprise. I love so many things about it. Just so many things, especially the tension. The tension to make something is there just through the elements, but the tension of those two talents coming together and meeting in this way and how that infused the sword into something even more powerful. I love that. Thank you. As do I. I also love the resistance. Yeah. Maybe I identify with the resistance. And of course, all the descriptions were amazingly beautiful. I love how in some way we can look at these as opposing forces or complicated relationships between powerful beings, powerful people at certain times have to work together for greater purpose, which shows such a high level of consciousness and responsibility and duty. I was inspired with the ending by a real sword that was found, I think, in the Thames did have the entire runes carved into it. Having heard about that, I've always wondered, how did it end there? What's the story of that sword? And today we find out. (laughs) (laughs) I think any sword that ends up in the lake for that many years, for hundreds, thousands of, you know, or thousand years is, is magic. I also love the idea that there's always something that we need to bow to. The willingness to give over one's gifts. And there's something about wanting to show up and be in integrity and do one's best while also negotiating what best is for others. One thing I liked about this Valkyrie is that she just had a superb command of herself and maybe by reaping all these different warriors over the years or decades or hundreds of years, thousands of years, who knows, she could talk to a powerful creature like Wayland, who's also known as Woland for those who maybe have heard of him that way. The long barrow actually exists as does the white horse. And that long barrow is known as Wayland Smithy. What does her name mean? Victory. Did you find yourself, Betsy, resonating with Wayland or Woland or with the Valkyrie herself or both? 
in a particular way? I think with both. I love the feel of, of Wayland being un- untrusting because having been captured before um, to be on the move, but I loved his going where the impulses took him for the creations that there was just such a sense of things flowing through him. And while he put his great skill towards things, he let the forces move him around too. And so, as you were saying, for him to then find himself in this tense situation, felt like it was good for him. Yeah, it totally felt like it was good for him for uh, listening. Yes. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, it felt like it was a triumph for him to be seen, to be witnessed, and to be unbound, but to be asked for his great work. So it it feels like there's an element of liberation for him on some level. Much needed healing and liberation. Well, it feels significantly more vulgar. I think he was also liberated from the chafing he was experiencing against his own ego. That feels true as well. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening. Thank you. And now, C's story. I have no magical weapon to bring to council today. I'm not sure what I was thinking. I was content, or at least I thought so, ruling over the community, the land, standing on solid ground. I wanted change, that much is clear. I forgot myself tripping over my own dream. That in itself is a forgetting. I'm not usually one for dreaming. It's my sister's department and she needs no help. I handle the waking world. I can only chalk it up to twilight or dawn. It was both a twilight that birthed the day. The problem was in skipping the night, allowing myself to dream under the sun instead of the moon. I didn't intend to sit there. I went for counsel, guidance, but he wasn't there. No one was there. How hard could it be? I didn't think. And in the absence of thought, absence of intention, I climbed the steps and sat down. Beauty, so much beauty. As soon as I saw it, I thought I should stop, but I couldn't. It wasn't so much that I lacked will as that some unconscious part of myself had will had willed itself into action, an action I could not take back. There she was, in all her glory, a goddess of the liminal. She danced between the realms. I didn't know her then. I only knew I wanted her. It was, and was not, shallow. Clearly, she was beautiful, but it was more than that. She compelled me in ways I cannot describe as if some part of my psyche had manifested her. That is within my power. Perhaps unthinkingly, I believed that it did, that she and I were a foregone conclusion. When I think of it, I feel sick. I told my father and my friend, no, my not a friend, that I loved her. I didn't love her. I recognized her. They are different. Now I love her built myself a prison of paradox and I can't find the way out. 
for we've built to us a prison of paradise. I wish to give her credit, but not blame. The blame is mine, the credit hers. I asked my not a friend to go to her and propose. Impress her, I said. Bring her back, I said. She will love me, I didn't think. He asked for my sword, so I gave it to him. I thought he was going to offer it to her. No, no. He rendered a magical item enchanted to balance the essence of the upper and lower worlds while holding a stable and strong in the middle world. Worthless. He couldn't access its power. He carried it around for a while, doing nothing more than impressing potential lovers. Then he lost it. He lost it. I have been avoiding the council, but today I must go. I am needed for a judgment. I will have to tell them, explain that our downfall is, will be, my fault. That when the final battle ensues, I will be empty-handed. But she will be with me on the battlefield. I hope she will. No, I know she will. I only hope she wants to. I would rather lose knowing she wants to be there than win having never known her. Or maybe it's that I would rather lose knowing the part of myself she awakened than win never having been fully me. For what can I know of her more than what she means to me? My not a friend went and returned with her promise, her promise to meet me in the forest in nine days. I've asked her what she did with those nine days many times. She will not tell me. The first time she lied, afraid not to answer. It was the dawn of my comprehension. I thought she came willingly, but she did not. I offered her her freedom, of course, but she was afraid to take it. It was not me who had cursed her. It was not me who can reverse her curse. She has to stay with me which means she can never want to. In sending him to fetch her, I rigged the game against myself. I pulled her from the numinous into the concrete, imprisoning her fluidity in my earthly stone. She is brilliant, pragmatic, and strong. There are none with more rigor, strength, or determination. To say she is beautiful is ludicrous, as beauty itself pales in comparison to her spirit. She can alter time, raise mountains, and rule kingdoms. But can she forgive me? Can I? And the council. The hall is lit up in a dim haze. Mid-morn competes with midwinter for light and shadow. The winner is a muted gray. I enter and take my seat, staring at the hearth. Fire is the connection I want most right now. It got me into this, it will get me out. She is already in the seat beside mine and she gives me a side hug as I sit. Everyone takes their places. The bringer of gifts is showing off his new wear, hoping they're good enough to spare his head. I will have to get through this contest before I will have the opportunity to address the group. What do I say? I have an announcement. No, it's not really an announcement. It's more of a confession, but I can't say that. Confession sounds as if I'm prone to guilt and will not play well with this crowd. I need to speak from my scars, not my wounds. My sword is gone. It is my responsibility. 
I have little hope of regaining it, but I'm committed to doing all that I can until the end game, where I will fight beside you with or without it. No, that sounds too egotistical. Like they can't win unless they have me. Plus, it's a premature defeat to say no hope. Though both might be true. Still, my sword is gone. That part's strong. My sword is gone, but I am with you to the end and will do everything in my power to assure our mutual success. You are my people, and I... Suddenly, she leans over and opens my hand so the gifter can place something in it. It is small, hard, and warm from his pocket. The hearth's flames are reflected in the polished golden surface. What have you brought? I ask. Skiv Gladner. She will expand to a full-size ship if only you unfold her. I stare at the sparkling nugget a moment before looking into his eyes, which oscillate between pride and pleading. So much love, so much pain, so much distance. I don't know how he bears it. But why would he gift the Lord of Agriculture a boat? And I realize that, like my relationship, this glittering lump is my sole manifest, that the changes I require come whether I welcome them or not. That may be the way to undo the curse of concretizing the liminal is for the god of land to master the sea. I did bring a magical weapon to the council today. My willingness to choose love over fear, change over oppression, life over death. I shall wield it proudly. That is a gorgeous retelling of that story, see. Thank you. And thank prayer. <laughs> and Gerd, is that her name? Mm -hmm. I think what I'm so struck by is how your story really shares with us how changed he was by her, how struck he was by her. And also, I feel strongly the hand of destiny in all of this as well. But you did a beautiful telling of his heart and his vision and his knowing. I want to say thank you, but I think you did it. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with everything Betsy said. And I'm deeply touched by the relevance of this story and by the relevance of, of longing, change, and the inevitable release of whatever we are in the moment into something greater or something that we really want that we don't even know why we want it like there's no reason here it is destiny and that he would be willing to give up and offer the most precious item the most precious aspect of himself to gain a new aspect he didn't even know existed yet he was willing to give up everything and I just see it in so many ways as, as a bridge because to expand your horizon by water means meeting new land, new possibility, new people, new communities, new ways of thinking. And I feel like that was so beautifully woven into the story. I, I really enjoyed it and has, has me thinking that way. Thank you. I also was intrigued by the lack of respect that his not friend had for the sword. 
after wanting it, apparently, and how magical weapons, I think anything that's potentized is going to perhaps bring forward what's really there in the holder, the wielder, and also for the sword to leave that non-friend's hands. <laughs> it's like that sense of it not wanting to be there with that person. That was my feeling as well. Just lost, just gone. Oh. Maybe it's in the lake. <laughs> I appreciate the vulnerability we see, the vulnerability and the questioning of love and whether or not he is truly loved. And that sort of, you know, when we cast a magical spell for someone to love us that we want really badly. And if that comes to us, are we always going to be wondering if that would have happened? I was touched by the vulnerability of that moment as well and that questioning. I think that's so true. I mean, do you, at the point when the spell is cast, does the person really love you or do they have to love you? And that becomes an agonizing question. Perhaps the ultimate price for casting such a spell. But to speak well for him is for him to know that it, what he thought was love in the beginning wasn't but did indeed become that. And I think it's, that's a good thing for a god of fertility and agriculture. Hmm. How was it being with this story? Oh, great. I love it. Great, I love it. I love all of them. Well, I feel like I know them both much better than I did before. So thank you for that. And now, Gabriella. Ah. <sighs> My story is called Yanoshik and the Three Sisters. There have been many stories shared about me, carried and whispered by the wind that blew across the Carpathian mountain peaks. Stories of adventure, passion, danger, and courage. Taking form in the smoke that rose around the fires where people gathered on cold nights. I can neither confirm nor deny any of these stories. To do so would be to take away from the storytellers and their gifts of weaving and empowering those who listened in times of need. Most of their stories are about my conquests and triumphs, but few know how my story truly began, which is the most important tale of all. The story of how I came to find who I was meant to be while I was wandering, lost in the woods. It was many, many years ago, and I was just a young man, barely out of boyhood, when I found myself lost in the forest after coming home for the summer from my studies in town. I wandered around for many hours and was met by the night, which came fast and caught me by surprise. I was not used to being lost. I decided to climb to the top of a high ash tree so I could see better and get a sense of what direction I should be heading. The forest was thick and vast all around with no edge in sight. In the distance, a flickering light danced through the trees and above the tree line, gray smoke. I threw my red cap in the direction of the light, 
climbed down the tree and walked forward until I found my hat and following its direction came upon a small hut. I knocked on the door three times. An old woman opened it slowly and peered at me suspiciously. Who are you and what do you want? She asked sharply. From the sound of her voice, she didn't seem fond of visitors. I lost my way home, mother, as I was coming back from my studies. I seek shelter for the night, if you would be so kind. My name is Yanoshik. I cannot invite you in for the night, said the woman, because if my elder sister comes home, she will surely kill you. As soon as I heard these words, I knew I had found myself in the company of witches. Whatever fate is meant for me, let it be. I will not leave here, for I am so very tired, and I must rest, I replied. Slightly resigned, the old woman opened the door and let me inside. She invited me to sit at the table and eat supper with her. The supper consisted of a most foul-tasting red soup, spiced so strongly that it made my stomach burn. But I said nothing. I ate it all and thanked my host for the meal. After we finished eating, she told me to hide behind the fireplace so that her sister wouldn't find me. I did just that. Shortly after, her elder sister flew in on a broom through the open window. Pew, pew, there must be a human hiding here. I can smell him, she exclaimed, sniffing the air in the hut, her nose wrinkled in disgust. Aha, see, Yanoshik, you must come out now, yelled the first sister, and I slowly came out from behind the fireplace. The elder sister ordered me to sit and eat supper with her, so I did. The black soup she gave me was so bitter that it made my mouth numb, but I said nothing. I ate it all and thanked her for this meal. When we were both finished, she said, you must go now, for if our oldest sister comes home, she will kill you without a doubt. But I refused. It is dark and I am tired, mother. I will not leave. I need rest, I said stubbornly, because this was true, and went back behind the fireplace. Shortly after, the eldest sister came home. Pew! A human! Where is he hiding? She demanded. And once again, I emerged from my hiding place. As requested, I sat with the oldest sister and ate with her. The white soup she fed me was so sour that it made my throat want to close shut. But I ate it all and thanked her for her meal. Once supper was finished, I went behind the fireplace to sleep while the three witches debated about what they should do with me. What they didn't know is that I wasn't sleeping at all, but was listening to every word they said. What a strange young man. Most would flee from a hut, not insist on sleeping in it. Let's put hot coals on his bare skin while he sleeps, said one of the sisters. If he stands the pain and doesn't wake and cry out, that means he's strong and resilient, worth saving. They all agreed. As they said they would do, they did. They took hot coals, opened my shirt, and put them on my bare chest. But I neither stirred or cried, enduring the pain in silence until the coals burned out. I heard the witches say, He shall be a man of great courage and endurance, best suited to be a mountain robber. We must prepare him for his profession. I will give him an axe, said the first sister. From me, he will receive a belt, said the second. And from me, a shirt, said the third. As they continued to talk, I listened intently and learned that the axe was no ordinary axe, 
And if I jump and stand on it, it will carry me forward in any direction for three miles in the blink of an eye. The shirt and the belt both will give me supernatural strength and might. The shirt made by the oldest sister was started with one thread at midnight and by morning it was fully woven and complete. The glistening threads of a strange texture moving with their own life like serpents. The belt embroidered with extraordinary motifs, red like blood, with shiny buckles as bright as the sun. The axe seemed to move on its own, matching my breath and intention, waiting for my command. The three sisters gave me the gifts and explained, you will not be a scholar or a priest. You shall be a mountain robber, which is why you need these items. The axe will carry you three miles in one jump and will protect you from danger. The shirt and belt will grant you extraordinary strength. You will become the leader of all robbers from this land. But before you can do that, you must first prove your worthiness and steal from your own father. If you do this and your father does not recognize you, we shall bless your destiny in full. I bowed and thanked the three sisters, took the three gifts, and left the hut, the path home now easily found in daylight. I decided not to wear my new shirt or belt or travel by my axe, but had them packed in my traveling sack. Upon arriving home, I was joyfully greeted by my father. We sat and ate together, but I kept pretty quiet as I had much to think about as I settled into myself and recalled last night's adventures. My father said he had planned to go to the market right before evening so he could get there by morning and buy a couple of cows for the farmstead. Don't go, father, I begged, feeling the burden of my impending final task. What if a mountain robber attacks you in the night? Ha, I am not afraid of no mountain robbers. Maybe you might be, my good son, but I am not afraid and I will go my father said. Sighing deeply and with my heart heavy, I watched father depart into the evening. A few hours later, I put on my new shirt and belt and jumped on my axe, which carried me three miles and right where my father was. Jumping off the axe, I pounded it into the ground and shouted in a bellowing voice, where are you going? To the market, he replied, his words trembling with fear. Give me your money. I demanded, and father did just so. Is that all of it? I asked. Yes, yes, all of it. I won't even have enough to get home, father replied. Hearing this, I gave him a few zwotes, enough for the old man to get home, and flew away on my axe. I was home for hours when finally my father arrived back, tired and shaken. He did not recognize me at all from back in the forest, dressed in robber's garb, and now sitting quietly at the kitchen table back in my school uniform. He didn't even blink. Ah, oh, my son, I should have listened to you, he said with regret. I was attacked in the woods by a mountain robber. He took all my money, only left a few zwotes so I could just get home. See, father, I was afraid of this. Can you tell me about this robber? Did you get a good look at him? Notice anything particular about him? Do you think you would recognize him if you saw him? I inquired curiously. Oh, yes, I would recognize him anywhere, father exclaimed. He was dressed in a most strange and terrible shirt and blinding shiny belt and had a giant, horrible axe. Just horrible, terrifying. As he told me this, 
I snuck into the corner of the house where he couldn't see me, changed into my robber's attire quickly, and jumped out in front of him. Did he look anything like this? I asked. Well, yes, yes, he yelled. Just like this. How can this be? I couldn't help but laugh and fetched the pouch with money I took from him earlier and returned it to him. Beloved father, it was me you saw in the woods. I will not be a scholar or a priest. I am now a mountain robber, and I will be the best mountain robber and leader these parts have ever known. Bless you, father. Be well and healthy. It is time for me to go now and start my new life. With those words, I departed, heading to the mountains, knowing that I passed the last test the three sisters set for me, and I was ready to become the leader of mountain robbers. In no time, I was just that. It was so easy. I found myself 12 talented and strong robbers, the best companions I could ask for. Each of them had unique gifts and strengths, but none of them matched my own. Together, we gained quite a reputation in these parts. Under my instruction, we only robbed the rich, never attacking the poor. As a matter of a fact, we usually gave what we stole from the rich to the poor to balance the scales. This, of course, enraged the rich and powerful, and they were always out to kill me, but I had no fear of death. And no matter how hard they tried, I always got away. My axe was fast like the wind, faster than any horse. My shirt, woven with the magic of supernatural threads, protected me from any kinds of attack. The belt, enchanted by the currents of destiny, fueled by my courage, deflected whatever stood in my way. My destiny, like my weapons, was blessed by the three mothers, the three sisters, and the powers of the woods that grew vast and thick all around. Thank you. That was a very fun story. I couldn't help relating to the dad, though, and being like, wow, should I be happy that my child is a thief? <laughs> but I it was a different time. It was a different time. <laughs> I was going to ask that. Is, is being the best mountain robber uh, considered to be a good career for your child? Um, but I can see that it would be. Yeah. Especially when it's a destined path. And especially when you're leading them. It could be a mountain robber, Robin Hood kind of robber, or or not. And do all sorts of things with that kind of power, the power of leadership. Well, to give some uh, reference this story, it's a one of the most popular stories from southern Poland and and Slovakia and just the Tatry Mountains. And there Janosik, who the story is about, was apparently a real figure, you know. So it is a person who existed. So it's unclear whether the stories came before the real person or after, but it is one of these stories I grew up with. And he's seen as a defender of the people and a warrior of the people and one who would need supernatural powers and supernatural strength to defeat the kinds of oppressors that came with great power and money. To meet that kind of an oppressor and to become a hero 
that folk, you know, the, the common folk talk about would usually meant magical intervention. So I would say in a case like this, yes, the father would be proud and wouldn't stand in the way of that destiny because of that level of destiny called, then you followed. They really did display remarkable courage with those witches too. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out if there's any way I could not flinch when somebody put hot coals against me. I don't know. I did love the whole listening to them, though. And I loved them. Yeah, I too. No, let's adopt him. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I found it interesting that the witches gave him a chance. Like, you can't, you shouldn't stay here. My sister will kill you. And but then they fed him. <laughs> and what did they feed him? I wonder. Mm-hmm. But he was polite. <laughs> Which, as we've said before, is always what you need to do when you are facing the supernatural is to be polite. Respect can go a long way and open doors. Absolutely. I was also curious about it being a, an axe that flew or that could help him fly for three miles. That's a, not your usual magical weapon. Yeah, it's the flying wind aspect of that part of the, the world and where the winds and axes are, are magical and they dispel danger and protect but all the items, all, all the magical items in this story, because the story is told in many different ways and, and there's so many different versions. And most of it really is about what he did, you know, and how he was captured and how he was finally caught, which we're not going to talk about today. But I've always been intrigued by how it all started because the how it all started is very consistent. There are the three witches or the three mothers or the three sisters and the three magical gifts which make him who he is. And the aspect of him not being recognized, he cannot be recognized by his father. So they're really a shape-shifting into a totally different form of himself, which I found intriguing. So the axe being very magical, powerful weapon, the shirt itself as well in Slavic culture is, is a very powerful and important attire. The belt as well. All those pieces coming together are that anchoring of power and and magical power. And that's actually still the the traditional garb of the Potala region from the mountains, and that's how people dress in their traditional garb. And with the axe, there are dances and folk dances and these different rituals that are performed. So it's definitely in that current of folk tradition and powerful tradition of honoring the land. It makes me wonder, too, um, if in the in Poland or the neighboring countries, if, if the axe also as a symbol of the thunder god and a god of the winds, etc. So do you think that there's an ancient aspect of the axe that connects in with this story? I really do. I do. Even so, as we're talking, I'm, I'm holding the the name of this axe is Chupaga, and uh, it's a shepherd's axe. Really, it's what it looks like, but it, it does have uh, elements of Thor's or Piorun, we would call him flower, and just the thunder aspect. 
and it is an ancient item that people have and it's considered very magical and yes, very, very old. And so of course that would be one of the items that the three mothers or the three sisters would give him. It's a recognized symbol. Yeah. And to connect him with that kind of power in the way that Thor or the God Perun manifests. Exactly. Defender. The defending forces. Yeah. And justice as well, because we were looking at the, you know, that he would balance the scales. He would take away from those who had too much and give to those who had nothing. So he does become a godlike hero in a lot of these stories, a supernatural being, a supernatural protector. I loved how he just threw himself into it, <laughs> embraced the opportunity. This is what's happening now. And Thor, too, has a belt. We rarely mention Thor's yeah. belt, but Thor does have a belt. Indeed. A very important part of his regalia. Yeah. Well, that was great fun. Thank you. That was fun. Yeah. Thank you. I love all of our stories today. I always do, but it, every time is just great. <laughs> <laughs> And there's something appealing about magical weapons, I think. There certainly is. Just We need all the magical items we can find and we can have. I was thinking that carrying forward on this week, I'm going to pay attention to what magical items I already carry, particularly those that I carry unconsciously, as well as what items in my life are sort of on the verge of magic that just need a touch to push them over the edge. I'm going to be thinking about the kind of magical items that have come my way that I haven't really necessarily strongly considered as part of my destiny, but it allows me to take another look at that and perhaps embrace it, embrace them a little bit more deeply. Yeah, I hadn't realized that all three stories, they were destined. All three stories, they were absolutely destined. Right. And I think that aspect of destiny and courage to meet destiny and the third part being the weapon whatever that may be or magical item that is infused by both courage and destiny triple strength triple power triple protection i will be looking at that too is am i willing am i willing to show up for this magical item especially if one is presented to me or given to me what is that person seeing what is destiny saying that I'm not and really opening up to that and saying, I, yes, thank you. I will. <laughs> I will. Because I think in each story, there was a strong sense of commitment. And what happens if something magical comes our way and we not only accept it and embrace it, but commit to that path and that destiny? Blessings. Many blessings. So look around you and notice what kind of magical things have come your way. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.